Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. Is Beijing's growing assertiveness towards its neighbours, and especially with Britain and the United States, a reflection of Chinese self-confidence and an alternative worldview that requires careful management, or is it evidence of a determined hostility that requires a clear-headed strategy to address? And, if the latter, what should that response involve? In this podcast, the former leader of the Conservative Party, Sir Ian Duncan Smith, against who Beijing has imposed sanctions in retaliation for his criticism, gives his assessment to the critic's political editor, Graham Stewart. Sir Ian, you've been uh, named as one of the sanctioned individuals by the Chinese government. Uh, What in practice will this mean for you? Well, that's, of course, difficult to say uh, exactly, because, of course, some of the more practical elements of this probably don't have a direct effect on on me, such as I had no plans particularly to travel to China or to be in China. And I generally, that I'm aware of, don't have any assets that are that are in China or relevant to China. Um, so that kind of those practicalities don't really work. My family are brought into this as well. So, you know, you can't always say, particularly they're younger, they may have planned to visit, you know, I don't know, Hong Kong or something at some point in the future. My son, I have a son that uh, that uh, studied Chinese and also studied Japanese as well uh, and has been in China. And, um, uh, you know, so, so there are... There are things and a daughter that, that travelled through China earlier on. So you just don't know how those will affect them, which is the one slightly uh, annoying element of it. But other than that, uh, it just comes as a, as a, as a, as a flavour of things that are already happening. I mean, the, uh, as a co-chair of, and founder of IPAC, the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, which you know, it's, it's uh, co-chairs in each of the countries, uh, left and right, uh, that come together as part of this, and each country then has membership within that country of parliamentarians. We now have 20 countries involved, from Japan to the United States, um, and even in Africa we have a couple of countries, I'm not going to name them, um, but uh, that, uh, that are also members, and a lot in Europe. Um, and it's interesting that we meet regularly and we talk uh, about what's going on, what we're doing, encourage each other to deal with this. Well, um, IPAC's sites have been under attack nonstop. Uh, the Chinese have condemned IPAC. Interestingly enough, they didn't sanction IPAC, but they've sanctioned 10 of the parliamentarians from IPAC, five in Europe and five in the UK. Uh, oh, actually more than that, uh, and two in the United States who have both been sanctioned. Uh, Marco Rubio is one of them. Uh, so, so they've been attacking us, and only yesterday the site came under what is a DOS attack, denial of service, which you have to be pretty powerful to be able to do. Uh, there's no question <clears throat> that in my mind was state-based, uh, and they brought it down. Uh, we've since counted and restored it, uh, but this has gone on more than once. So, um, so you know, we've up until the point that we've been sanctioned, they've basically been practicing, uh, de- you know, denial of service acts and attacks on us. Um, I've been threatened on a number of occasions publicly, uh, singled out. I'm not bothered about that. So that's that's the nature of of how this has all worked. So we don't know where this all heads, um, but. 
there is you know that you always have to trade off on these things when you when you raise an issue such as the the behavior of of china internally and externally mm-hmm. i mean one thing that, that seems to be clear now is that the uh, so-called golden age of sino-british relations uh which um supposedly existed during the the uh, days of the the cameron clegg uh, coalition government are over, but what isn't clear is whether we are going through a period of disengagement uh, with mutual rancour uh, thrown into it, or, or one where we have the an emergent Cold War situation. So many different areas: uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, Chinese penetration of uh, of technology, uh, and so on. Is it? Um, inflationary talk to, to speak of, a, of an emerging Cold War now, or are we in fact already in some form of Cold War? Now, the way I would phrase it is that uh, we went through a phase of what I would call naive, uh, naive engagement, which is referred to as the golden era. I, without he- hesitation at the time, was very uneasy about it. Well, I was in the government, it wasn't my area, but I was uneasy about where this was going. I hated it when the uh, Chinese president came to address both houses of parliament with all his record of terrible abuse. More importantly, when he addressed us, it was an arrogant address, I thought. Uh, It dismissed the UK and the West, talked about how great China was and how great it will become. Uh, I found it quite a menacing speech, personally, and I nearly walked out on it, but I was quietly asked by another senior member of the cabinet uh, don't do it. Uh, uh, don't do it at all. I wish now I had. Um, but so I was uneasy about the nature of which, as it became nicknamed within government project Kowtow, was um, uh, was was developing. Um, and so we moved, I think, from what I call naive engagement um, to a what I call a gradual, uh, a gradual realistic um uh view so so it's it's not it's not sudden what's ha- actually happened is china refuses to compromise its behavior uh to begin with british government start turns a blind eye to a lot of this tibet was the big thing at that time uh, because the Uyghur stuff, you know, we didn't have enough evidence, but the Uyghur stuff was building. Then there's all the Christian Falun Gong, uh, you know, all the terrible abuses taking place there. Um, And then Hong Kong has erupted. So in a way you could argue, China has been utterly open about its attitude. uh, And what we tried to do was to think that somehow in a naive way that free markets change countries. What China has demonstrated to us is nothing of the sort. What they've realized is you can have a free market and you can have autocracy. And they're proving that that is how you do it. Uh, And our failure to understand that democracy doesn't just come because somebody is trading with you. Uh, You have to fight for democracy. Uh, And um, China has demonstrated they're prepared to fight for their own system. And that's where the Belt and Road stuff comes from. So so all the signs were there, but they were ignored in our desperate rush to try and put business first above everything else. Now that is beginning to falter. And I think the Chinese um, banning of us uh, has actually forced the hand of different governments, particularly the British government, to recognize actually this is no longer a sustainable position that to want trade deals with a country that is just so abusive and so arrogant um, as they are at the moment. So that then brings us now more into line with the United States, uh, 
So that means at last that alliance is beginning to re reform. And I think that is an enormously positive thing because that alliance will lead, I hope, the free world to recognize we are not a competitor with China, uh, but China is, a, in that sense, it's, it's a strategic threat. They're not just a competitor. They are a strategic threat, not just uh, in a physical sense, but also in an ideological sense. They, through their Belt and Road project, are one by one gathering a large uh, complement of um, of developing nations who are now prepared to sign up to China with their form of government and through Chinese money. And for too long, we quit the field in this area. We didn't compete with China, and now we have to re-enter. And I was pleased to see that Boris Johnson um, uh, made this point to Biden, and Biden has grabbed it, and this idea of setting up some kind of fund that can counter the Belt and Road process with the developed world. This is long overdue. This is a really important feature uh, of it as well. Um, could Britain joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership in some shape or form, do you see that as part of building this um, alternative economic interest to China in the Asia-Pacific area? I do. I, I, first of all, I think since leaving the European Union, <clears throat> it gives the UK government an opportunity to forge our own policy. And looking for markets elsewhere is now a, an absolute must for the UK, which is one of the reasons for leaving. Uh, Re-engaging east of Suez is ironic, uh, but it is where we will be. But what I think has stunned the government is the degree to which those countries east of Suez are over the moon about our re-emergence and our recommitment. So uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership is absolutely determined to have us on board. And I thought that was, a, if we haven't learned anything from this, it tells you that we do have global reach as a country. We may not have the, the biggest forces in the world or be the biggest country, but we are disproportionately influential and we're just re-emerging into the Commonwealth again. Many of those nations in the east of Suez are Commonwealth members. Um, and even countries like Japan are desperate to have us back on board. So if we go into the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which I'm very much in favour of, I think America can be introduced back into that process and they will join. So we will help bring the states into this, which is exactly what they want as a counter now to Chinese influence in the, in the area around the South China Seas and in the, um, in the Pacific. It's a really important strategic position. And I think the sending of the Royal Navy carrier and other ships into that area is a great statement by the UK that we're back and we mean to be back to stay. And I think that will be welcome from everywhere from Australia through to Fiji. In, in terms of working with America and other um, Southeast Asian countries uh, to build this alternative economic magnet uh, to uh, China, uh, what, what sort of timescale do you think? Uh, is this something that, that's attainable within this parliament or are we looking at a sort of five, ten year uh, plan for, for this? To well, I think we're looking at a rolling process, but certainly a lot of it can be achieved in the next two years. I think we can get our membership of the Trans-Pacific Partnership moving very quickly. Uh, and I think at the same time now, um, we're much more at a balance with the United States in terms of their policy on this. I think together we can start to bring the European Union into line again. They've, they're all over the place at the moment. I mean, Germany is just desperate 
to do a deal with China, which this financial deal they've done, economic deal, is a disaster actually for them. But it's because they have so much of their manufacture that is now reliant on Chinese production. Um, and Germany has bullied the rest of Europe. But what is quite interesting is that IPAC's European members are absolutely furious about this deal. And many of them are MEPs, and they want to stop this when it gets to the European Parliament. So all of this process is building ahead of steam. And it may be that the UK and the US and, and others can start to persuade the European Union that they've got to start placing um, human rights at a higher pedestal than just economic activity. So Germany will be the toughest nut to crack on that. But I think there are other countries, Italy and others, that are beginning to wake up to the fact there's a problem. And I think I think IPAC will have an effect on persuading um, various parliaments to, um, to think again. Mm -hmm. When China was admitted to the World Trade Organization, it was a fraction of the size it is now, and, and it joined on uh, very uh, lenient or, or permissive terms. Um, can the WTO realistically be reformed to uh, address some of the imbalances that uh, the nature of Chinese membership of WTO has created? Well, I wouldn't call it just imbalances. I think China's trashing the WTO at the moment, has been done doing so for years. Uh, yes, it's high time that their situation was revisited. They are a first world country now, not a not a third world country or a developing country. Um, and they also, anyway, beyond their own agreed status, they simply don't agree or or uphold any kind of rule that comes from the WTO. You know, they their their own competition process is is an outrage. You know, we finally stopped Huawei being involved in the 5G system, but that was a battle. But they've been killing all the other um, telecoms infrastructure providers for years. There were 12, I think, 10 years ago. There are now only three that are not Chinese. Um, two of those are in Europe, happen to be in Scandinavia, and one is in South Korea. I mean, that, because of their ability to use Chinese state money to underbid, has been going on whilst the West has been asleep. And now they're suddenly waking up to it. I mean, America hasn't got a single infrastructure provider. I mean, there's, that in itself is astonishing. Um, <clears throat> but they're now waking up to that, and so is the UK. But we had a hell of a struggle with the UK government to get them to realise uh, that you can't go on just placing the price of the product. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's strategic nature, it's uh, threat, in terms of uh, uh, quasi-military threat, etc., all have to pose a challenge to who you have. And so all of that has finally prevailed on the UK government. So it's been a step-by-step -step process. Then the Uyghur are in the frame, trying to get them to recognise genocide, you know, setting up these committees. It's been a slow stepping process as the government is beginning to move back away from uh, this, um, what I call Project Kowtow. Uh, and to a more realistic position that says they are a genuine strategic threat to us now. Um, bigger than, in a way, that the Russian threat. I don't mean to diminish that, but Russia's threat comes off an economy the size of New York State. I mean, it's really not that big, and it's almost completely reliant on oil. So <clears throat> very unpredictable. Um, China's is huge. <laughs> they have an economy now which, thanks to Western investment, huge investments, uh, is rivaling the United States. Uh, that on the back of an autocracy that brooks no dissent, 
and uh, treats uh, human beings uh, in any way that it chooses. I mean, if this wasn't China, you know, if it was Chile or something, you could see straight away what the reaction would be. But because it's China, they get away with it so far, but we've got to make sure they don't. So that's where it all begins. And I think the West is now in a much more... uh, sensible place with further to go. Mm-hmm. Just a final question, if I may. I mean, from uh, the, the Huawei through to the Ouija's, you've been part of a, a dedicated group of, uh, of MPs that have felt they've had to push this government continually uh, in a series of steps. Do, do you feel that the government now gets it and we have a, a radically different uh, approach from Whitehall towards Beijing, or is it still a succession of of pushing a Whitehall that, that is reluctant really to see China as as, as you see it? Um, it's always going to be a process. Uh, you know, back in it, uh, at the time when George Osborne was Chancellor, uh, everybody was signed up to the idea that China's growing. We need a bit of that growth, and therefore businesses. We should do everything we can. We went way over the top, in my view. Uh, we looked, I thought, pathetic at the time. Um, and when we used to say, did you raise the issue you know, of the treatment of Tibet? You knew what happened. Yes, we raised the issue. Well, what they did was in private, they sat down and said, um, we must now raise the issue of treatment of Tibet. And then President Xi would say something like, this is all complete lies and rubbish and blah, 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 blah. That was it. Now they're back onto something else. So it was all tokenistic nonsense. Um, I think that is shifting. So as in all these processes, it's a stage by stage by stage by stage process. And the government has moved a number of stages. Uh, and I think these recent uh, banning orders has now moved them to a further place. As realisation dawns, you can't really deal with these people because they don't care what you think. They don't care what you want. They will only ever judge it on what they can get off you. Uh, and they have no interest or sense uh, of condemnation from the rest of the world. They think that they're powerful enough and going to be more powerful so that they will dominate. <clears throat> and when they dominate, you will do as they t- tell you, not the other way around. So they don't really care about diplomacy. President Xi has been very clear about that. He's departed from any chimera of, uh, or a sense of uh, diplomacy that was in existence before, they've given up on that. Now what they say is, we have a rightful place, a kind of middle kingdom. We are going to reach that point, and it is us that is going to call the shots, not the feeble West with their democracy and their human rights, which are a completely waste, a pointless waste of time. We decide what is right, and our citizens will have a better form of life by knowing what they have to do rather than telling us. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, a sombre note to end on, but, but see, and thank you very much indeed. Mm. My pleasure. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.